I went to a marvelous party. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. From the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show, the Internet's first live comedy variety show, with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. No, there's actually a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, we're going no, to no. take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. <laughs> Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through the dinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the Get out of my office. It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric. Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Show for June 15th, 2014. And tonight, we will not be offering up our thoughts about whatever is going on between internet retail titan Amazon and Hachette, the giant French multi-billion dollar media conglomerate that owns Little Brown Publishing. The only reason we're not talking about it is because we don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. But both companies have signed some sort of confidentiality agreement about their dispute. So despite a lot of wild speculation from a number of what we had previously thought were respectable news sources and some opinions from some very, very successful authors, they nor anyone else knows anything about this fight between these two secretive giants either. However... In the spirit of offering unasked for advice, we will say that if someone won't let you be on their website, you can start your own. We did, and we figure if we can do it, anyone can. Mm -hmm. Particularly the giant media companies that own almost all of publishing. We can't really accuse anyone of eliminating competition if there isn't any, right? So let's get some. Indeed. Also not being discussed on tonight's show, Portland, Oregon's Naked Bike Ride, in which thousands of bicyclists, many of them stark naked, took to city streets on their bikes for a protest intended to draw attention to, and I quote, oil dependence, cycling vulnerability, Uh and body image. (laughs) Yeah. While we will be talking about oil dependence later in the show, we're never talking about cycling vulnerability, except Mm. to say that if you ride a bicycle and your 
sick of being harassed by car drivers? Try following the same traffic laws they do and see if it earns you their respect. It'll certainly earn you Eric's. And as for body image (laughs) issues, personally, we think these would improve across the board if we were expected to get naked less, not more. Uh Yeah. Okay, so those of us at the dinner party show (laughs) have no helpful thoughts to offer up on the armed standoff in Bundyville, Nevada, surrounding tax deadbeat multimillionaire racist idiot rancher Cliven Bundy and his refusal to pay us what he owes us for using our land while personally profiting from its use. We do have a helpful suggestion for the Reagan administration's fruitless and decades-long search for their mythical racist claims— of welfare queens. Guys, we finally found her. Your welfare queen is Cliven Bundy. Woo-hoo! Coronation complete. Queen Cliven, may your reign be brief and our memories long. Indeed, all hail. We will not be talking about the Tony Awards, speaking of queens, because Mm. we didn't watch them, (laughs) and we didn't watch them because our Gay Pride special was on at the same time, so we're assuming you didn't watch them either. Right. Unless you were one of the people who posted on our Facebook page that the Tonys were on, so you couldn't listen to our show, and you wanted to know if we were really gay, given that we scheduled our show at the same time as the Tony Awards. (laughs) And L.A. Pride. We also won't be telling you what won Best Musical, which won't matter, because you probably haven't heard of any of the nominees anyway, because they're not wicked. Unless, of course, you're one of those people who didn't listen to our show because you watched the Tonys, in which case, whatever, we're not talking about them or you. (laughs) It's a cricket up in here. Who brought their cricket? That was my... Matronly tish tish. <laughs> okay, that's what that. For was. those who didn't listen to the show, <laughs> we also have no advice to offer on the controversy surrounding the World Cup soccer competition currently taking place in Brazil. Who knew? We understand that there's massive corruption involved in the FIFA soccer organization itself, and that while millions of Brazilians are starving in the streets, <laughs> their government has spent more than $10 billion on lavish event preparations. But we're Americans, and we don't actually know anything about what we call football in this country, no, let alone what the rest of the world calls football. Mm-mm. So... We'll wish the competitors good luck and the spectators great fun. And to the people of Brazil, it is our fondest hope that everyone left their fucking vuvuzelas in South Africa. Um, That's my vuvuzela (laughs) impression. It doesn't get any better than that. And lastly, we will not be discussing the fact that Rue McClanahan died again for the second time this past week. I know. When devoted fans of the Golden Girls star decided to memorialize her death with short remembrances on Twitter... Other Twitter users shortened the text of those memorials, Hmm. and social media was suddenly flooded with outpourings of grief over a death that actually happened four years ago. Here's hoping that Twitter or Facebook or your aunt, who is brand new to both, doesn't force us to relive the events of 9-11 or the stock market crash because they clipped that tweet in just the wrong place. (laughs) As for everything else, it's still on the table on tonight's episode of The Dinner Party Show. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Enjoy the hors d'oeuvres, but don't fill up. There's plenty more to come. 
Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm still Christopher Rice. And I've always been Eric Shaw Quinn. Always. Let me just say that my laughter during the Knot Report was not at the fact that lots of Brazilians are starving. It was at your addition of millions to millions of Brazilians that <laughs> sort of got me. I remember Beckett once used Brazilians as a numerical term. I yes. said, how many? And he said, Brazilians. And yeah. I think I fell on the floor at a nice restaurant where we were eating at the time. Which you were one to do. Eric Shaw Quinn loves to fall on the floor. And what he also loves to do, I'm going to make this all about him tonight. Because it's always all about me. Give unsolicited advice, which is why we came up with this right. idea for this special, since you didn't ask. And I think I'm not alone in this. <laughs> I think Christopher probably likes to offer up unsolicited advice a bit. Maybe well, not me, as much as, not me... professionally like I do, but yeah. he's certainly definitely one of the leading amateur advice. Advice givers in the world, along with I'll bet a lot of you out there. I I, I think in the age of the and the of the internet age, excuse me, we're getting a little for the interwebs in the interweb Grandpa. age. Everybody is is a fucking expert. Everybody is giving everyone a list of stuff they need to do. If I see one more fucking list of stuff I need to not say anymore from some total fucking stranger <laughs> on the web, fuck off. I'm not talking to you. Don't tell me how to talk. But please listen to the dinner party show and download all of our episodes. My from our favorite. Archive. My favorite thing that people do with the our oversaturated, overcommunicated society is some news event will happen about something and like the, the, the plane going down in Malaysia, the tragedy with the horrible plane we crash. We think it went down. We, we think. Don't we don't know. But about three to four hours of news cycle into the event, everyone is suddenly an expert on the type of plane, the um, the thing they're looking for. Okay, the this way is hitting a little close for. to home. Okay, well, they will pick a different example because <laughs> no. it doesn't make any difference. Like, yeah. everybody becomes an expert. I have watched in horror as people have become experts on the, the service record of Bo Bergdahl. Oh, yeah. Who, that we know nothing about, and people are actually, you know, convicting him and sentencing to be hanged by a jury of his peers without knowing anything about anything. You know, people become instantly media experts because they've heard somebody on their favorite talking head channel. Right. It's all partisan cherry-picking, okay? I, I, are, I have a, a belief about the outcome before it ever happened. I think I know what happened to that plane, so I'm going to go to the New York Times, and then I'm going to go to Crackpot dot com and I'm going to cherry pick everything that makes sense to fit my theory and yeah that's totally what happens there was an article in the New York Times recently about what what is defined as cultural literacy and it's the thing that you always make fun of me for doing where I arrive at dinner and I say there is an armed standoff in Nevada and you go oh well really who does it involve and I'll say I, well, I just I saw the headline in some tweets I don't I don't actually know who it involves <laughs> you know that's what now passes for cultural literacy is it, there was a joke about Yale students that a teacher of mine in high school who was from who had gone to another Ivy League often made about a colleague of his that he wasn't a fan of. He said she went to school to learn to talk about a lot of books she hadn't read. You know, <laughs> like we learn to talk about <laughs> other people talking about a topic that's too complex for us to spend too much time on. We well, think. It, we just take the talking points and we go out like we're all some holding a press conference. I, that's I just am frequently like, I don't actually care what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Not you, but you know, like the, the people who are tweeting on the news or whatever, like so-and-so says they announce, like on the CNN channels, they announce what people are actually tweeting. And it's like, yeah, I actually tuned into the news for, you know, 
news. Yeah, right. Not for people's opinions. I, I, I have a radio show where I like to hear about people's opinions, and I have a blog and Facebook page yeah. and a Twitter account. I love people's opinions, but I don't actually tune into the news for people's opinions, even the newsmakers. Well, maybe you do, maybe you tune into the news for like Ariana Huffington's opinion of, of internet commerce because maybe. she seems to know what maybe what she's talking maybe. about in that area. But you're right. The man on the street interviews that you and your father always used to like to oh make fun of. Oh, my God. There was the best, the best ever. WLTX, the um, CBS <laughs> affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina, did a man on the street. And the question was... So how do you feel about daylight savings time? <laughs> and people actually had an answer for the question. They didn't laugh in the The ones they aired didn't laugh in the reporter's face. I'm not sure that people didn't. And what was your favorite answer? We enjoy it. <laughs> that was my favorite answer of all we time. Enjoy we it. enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after we've dismissed the opinions of everyone except our own... Right. Um, everyone except us, I should well, say. Well, in the tradition of these, the opinion giving that is taking over our cultural uh, mm-hmm. illiteracy. <laughs> yes, What was exactly. it you said they were calling it? Cultural, cultural literacy. Yeah, cultural but... illiteracy, I think, is maybe the, the rise of cultural illiteracy. Dilettantism, I think, is another word Absolutely. for it. So what we wanted to do was put together a lot of topics of great world concern and come up with our complete completely unqualified and unasked for opinions about solutions to those problems. All right. So first up on our list is how can we end bullying in schools? And by school, I assume we mean high school. Well, I think schools in general. I think uh, public school in this country. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that was my I was having a conversation with actually with my nephew about the topic recently. And it just it astonishes me that in the 21st century, we're actually still having this conversation. Mm-hmm. The thing that amazes me the most is that we act as though the laws of the rest of the country are somehow suspended because you're on a school campus. Like, if I hit somebody mm-hmm. in the real world, there are actual real-world consequences to that event. I, I think that there are children who are in school because they want to learn stuff, and then there are children there because they have to be, and they're dealing with, I don't know, whatever their own issues are, the bully crowd. And I don't see any reason that the children who are there for their education should be forced to attend the same school as the bullies. My solution is I would build bully schools. Mm. Like, I would you know, not a prison environment, but a stricter school environment where the bullies could attend school with the other bullies. So they'd have a sense of what that's like. And they would be in a much more closely monitored, much stricter environment where they would get the attention they probably need for whatever has caused them to act out. And I would find their parents. Mm-hmm. I would actually hold their parents accountable for their children's behavior. Punishment, fine, maybe even jail sentences, depending on how. Uh, but but. Actually taking responsibility, get involved in your kid's life, because that's probably where the problem is coming from anyway. So if they won't get involved by inviting them to a parent-teacher conference, which they traditionally haven't, or the problem would have gone away, let's involve them in a legal way. And Mm -hmm. I I know that there's always the, you know, the how are we going to pay for and what the whatever. The other problem with public education is that we act like somehow it's this 
frill, this mm-hmm. extra expense. I would like to pass a law that says that we cannot spend any more on the military than we spend on public education. Or, conversely, that we spend as much on public education as we do in the military. If we spend as much on education as we do in the military, teachers would be the most skilled people in our culture, and uh, we'd have cold water fusion, there would be no global warming, everybody would be driving a, a a vegetarian powered electric car. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I really think that it a ought car to... powered by actual vegetarians. That would sure. Be, I why can't not? Stand vegetarians. I'd love to put them in my tank. No, I figure probably just you know you vegetables give it a, biofuel. Give it a, yeah, you put a, a a eggplant in your tank and drive to whatever. Yeah. Or you know, I don't know. I have no idea. But I think that we ought to be investing. I think it would do much for much more for our country's of defense mm-hmm. to invest the kind of money and resources in education that we do in the military. Mm-hmm. Let's have the education industrial complex. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. All right, so we solved two problems. How can we end bullying in schools and how will we fund education? We still have to talk about how we're going to improve criminal sentencing, which we have some thoughts about as well. Maybe I'll have a thought or two. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but now it's time for a word from one of our sponsors here on The Dinner Party Show. Do you love the sense of connection you get from social media? I can't wait for all of my friends to see this video of me and my dance recital. But do you hate being connected to people who only want to hurt your feelings? <sighs> Look at this stupid bitch. Stupid dance recital video. I'm going to post a comment. You look like a dumb whore. I hate your whore face. Go do whore things instead of dancing, because you suck. Oh, my God. Who is this guy? Why are people so mean? We're not quite sure, young lady. What we are sure of is that nice people like you have gone long enough putting up with the kind of hate speech that defines so much of internet communications. That's why we've developed Find a Troll. Wait, what? I said Find a Troll. Find? What do you mean, fuh? Utilizing the latest global positioning software made popular by mobile dating apps, Find a Troll uses firewall-busting technology to pinpoint the exact location of the jerk who just verbally abused you by way of an anonymous blog post or a fake profile. Wait, shit, shit, wait, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Then... Find a Troll unleashes a mole that takes control of all the electrical systems and local data networks at the target's exact location. Why is it dark? Ow, my computer's on fire! Help! Everywhere I look, there are blue sparks! Featuring the creative brain power of the Hollywood writers who devised the death scenes in the most recent Final Destination film, Find a Troll creates a literal living nightmare in the immediate vicinity of the internet troll in question, rendering them as powerless and humiliated as you felt when you read their hateful comments. Why is my dishwasher coming towards me? I don't know. Isn't this kind of mean? Don't worry. Find a Troll simultaneously uses an international routing system to place untraceable phone calls to all the local emergency services near the target's location. Calls which significantly increase the target's chances of escaping their home before it becomes a smoking ruin. Yeah, but what about their neighbors? Don't overthink this, young lady. The internet is a jungle. Do you want to be predator or 
pray. Oh my God, I'll just stop posting stuff online. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I guess you're right. Where do I sign up? Find a troll. Don't let all those hateful comments go unanswered. Who's the whore face now, troll? Listening to the Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, where the soup is hot, but the heads are hotter. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show, brought to you by Find a Troll. I'm Christopher Rice. Uh, who's a whore face now? I love that. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I love that spot. That's that handles bullies. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I had another thought during the break about your bullying ideas, which I think are very good. Are you bullying my bullying? I'm ideas? not bullying your bullying ideas, but I was reminded of an incident. I don't think it was an incident on Twitter. It was an incident, which means everybody forgot about which it. Which means next it didn't day. really happen. Uh, Melissa Harris Perry, who is a commentator on MSNBC and writes a lot for The Nation, did a spot. It was one of those lean-forward promos, you know, like Rachel Maddow does, uh-huh. where they're talking very earnestly in some very real-world setting. And she said something about our children are everybody's children, and it was some appeal to community faith, right, that we should all sort of look after each other's children. And the right went after her, which was odd because she wasn't very well known then. She wasn't. She didn't have a big red X on her. And they were talking about how my children are my children. Get your hands off my children. And it brought to mind all these strange attitudes we have about parental possession in our society, which I think goes to some of the issues you just raised. This attitude that kids are exempt from laws because their parents should be the law up until a certain age which allows them in some instances to just act abominably in public environments and nobody's supposed to do anything because it's the parent's sole responsibility to enforce law and order in that child's life. And the parents often yeah. do a really horrible job. Right, and, and we, they should be held accountable And they should it. be held accountable, but the parents also lead with this hyper-protectiveness. Their identity becomes everything is about my child and everything that you could potentially do anywhere near us might hurt my child. And it's often exaggerated and fear-driven and not based in any real-world data about risk or harm. You know, and there's no way to enforce that, but I think that's some of what's weird about this issue in our culture is that we just let kids do whatever their fucking parents are going to let them do. And it's it's not enough, particularly if you grow up in an atmosphere of bullying like you did and like I did right. for various reasons. It's it's not enough. The parents aren't stepping in. Yeah, no, I, I think, and it, I also think it's disingenuous. You know, the what about the children appeal. Right. You know, the the same people who are weeping about what about the children and leaving this great debt to our, mm-hmm. you know, children, even though we're refusing to pay our taxes, we're, we're also leaving them this great debt, which is a great tragedy. They're the same people who are acting up and opposing the idea of allowing college students to refinance their school loans. Uh, yeah, right. You Absolutely. know, in the same vein, you know, almost in the same breath as they're bewailing the the legacy that we're leaving our children. Well, what if we actually did something about their actual debt? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Okay, another topic that we're going to give our unsolicited advice on, gun control. Oh, God. Gun control. You have some opinions about... (laughs) We have arrived at such a place with this issue, I swear. I did, I tweeted this week, 
where are we not going to have a mass shooting, right? We've had a period where we've had one literally every day of the week. Yeah, I it is it is we're in an unbelievable place with this topic and and I I don't want to make light. No. You know, I but I I think that it is laughable some of the attitudes that we've taken. There's there's this whole idea of you know the open carry idea, right? You know, right. We're um, we have Second Amendment rights and we're allowed to own weapons, and so now there are groups of people who are taking them. There was an incident at Chipotle restaurant mm-hmm. somewhere, I think in Dallas, somewhere in Texas, mm-hmm. where everybody I think is required to carry a gun, but um, people took their like assault rifles. They were strapped. They mm-hmm. weren't just armed. They didn't have, you know, a, a discreet revolver under their jacket. They took assault rifles into Yeah, I think a we've all seen the restaurant. pictures of this. And it's, they also went to Target and a bunch of other public I just, places. I, you know, and obviously people freaked out. And I, the thing that it that it raises for me is like we're we're creating sort of the perfect storm. Like we have stand your ground laws that say, you know, if I feel threatened, I can shoot you right. and kill you. I can use deadly force. And then we have people showing up armed with assault rifles, which I can't think of anything more threatening than that. So if the people at Chipotle had shot the people, the the open carry people, they would have been off the hook. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, right. it's like, are we are we creating an environment where we, this sort of Wild West environment where we just shoot each other all the time? I I don't know what I, you know, I, I wrote um, a while back on uh, my blog on ericshawquinn.com and we'll get uh, Shay to post the, uh, the link to, it was an article called Second Amendment Solutions. And I proposed creating an organization called SAFE, S-A-A-F-E. Which stands for? Let me look. Oh my God! Did you forget your? Oh, actually, you have your blog up I on your iPad have to right look here. Look so that I can find it. It's the Second Amendment Advancement Foundation for Equality, and what what we would do is we would raise funds to relocate heavily armed youth from urban areas to areas like, I guess, Dal- the su- Dallas suburbs, uh-huh. where people are in favor <laughs> of people going around heavily armed. Like, I think, you know, and then they can have the Wild West environment together. We could together. create a biracial or multiracial militia of a- gun lovers absolutely. that would totally get along with each or other. Or they could, you know, fight it out in some yeah. other stand-your-ground kind of culture. Like, so areas like New York or Los Angeles or whatever where we don't want people with guns, well, we'll just relocate the people who are big gun fans mm-hmm. to areas where other gun fans le- live, um, okay. rural areas all across the South, right. I think would be, you know, a great place, it, fresh air and outdoors yeah. and exercise and, you know, Second Amendment exercise for all the, the heavily armed urban youth. So that's safe. That's my okay. um, my uh, gun law um Solution. I have a gun law solution. Really? I would I call it the gun proximity law. And it would be <laughs> if you see a gun, run. That that's normally what I do, unless it's a, a really hot West Hollywood Sheriff's Department guys, and some of them are really hot. Mm. Uh anyway, there would be a formula that would apply to you based on how far you lived from the nearest law enforcement station or installation. And the capacity of that installation to protect you, their response time, for one, 
between them and your property. And that their capacity or their firepower or their manpower or woman power would also go into this formula of what they could protect you from. Could they reasonably protect you from a home invasion? How quickly could they get to your home if you hit a panic button or if you called 911? And then based on how far you were from that station, you would be allowed to have a certain type of firearm in your home and in your home only. Okay. I honestly believe, and this is wildly presumptuous on my part, that a lot of this gun mania, while it masquerades as fear of the government and wanting to have a militia, it comes from people in predominantly rural areas who do not feel safe, they do not feel protected by an active and ever-present law enforcement agency, and they feel like they have to literally protect their own home from their neighbors. So that's what I would propose. I do not believe that people should have the right to carry a gun anywhere they fucking want to. And and there are ways to do that that I think are beyond open carry. Yeah. You know, that there was there were ways in New Orleans to be deputized as a deputy sheriff because we had police officers, so that was a different class of people. Uh-huh. I think my father was a deputy sheriff and was allowed licensed to carry a firearm. And in a city like New Orleans, where crime is so rampant, nobody blinked at that. You know, but I don't. I, I don't think that's okay. Like I so. But but that that idea of being able to protect your own home, particularly if it's an isolated home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, a house in the Sonoma County woods when I was young, and this was when Sonoma was not as developed as it is now. And I remember, A, I was a little boy and I was afraid of everything, but I remember the fear of being That's way out. completely gone away. It's completely gone away. I'm, a, I'm fucking Buddha now. But I remember the fear of being out in those dark woods alone. And I remember somewhat of a desire to have that place and to enjoy that place, but a desire to also feel relatively safe if somebody came down that road and I knew the cops were an hour away. So I, that's, I, you know, I don't think it's a what foolproof if, idea. What but if we just, what if we just didn't have any guns? What if nobody had a gun? Well, I don't necessarily believe this, but I think when you make this assumption, you do have to address that idea of then there's a black market for guns and only, quote unquote, bad guys have guns and then you don't when they come out your door. But then you can just arrest people for just having the gun. You don't have yeah. to wait for them to shoot anybody with Are, it. Is there any country in the in the world that has that law? I don't know. I'd be interested to know that. Because the laws that everybody brings up in this debate are Australia's. Uh, Rupert Murdoch this week, the founder of Fox News, once again took to Twitter to ask why America didn't have better gun control laws. So I don't know if Sean Hannity or any of the other Fox News crew is going to address that statement from their boss. But Australia is brought up often and the United Kingdom is brought up often. And they both, in response to mass shootings, had uh, implemented very strict assault weapon. Yeah. Laws like right. I, at least we can limit the 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 efficacy. The only um, attack I ever saw in London was one hoodlum hitting another hoodlum with his belt. A belt belt attacks are a big problem. It was like right you know, yeah. like okay, like it was it was almost like nobody deserves to get hit, but they were fighting, and mm-hmm. but but nobody was going to die, right? You know, in the encounter, and I don't know. I actually thought that was kind of like charming. But what about also the Bowling for Columbine estimation, which I think gets lost. People who either haven't seen the movie think it's just a movie about gun control, but ultimately Michael Moore goes to the place of, it's the culture of fear that we live in that causes the problem. That Canada is as well armed, if not more armed, than we are, and they don't have the shootings and they don't have the crime because they aren't being fed this constant menu of alarmist, terrifying crap by the news media in that country. It's just not the same. 
and and I wonder if uh, if we took all the guns away, we would have people. I don't know. Would we have? Would the guy in Santa Barbara, the Isla Vista shooter, turn to explosives that he could learn how to make on the internet? Or I just, like it, the kid in that one high school, would he just show up with a knife and stab people? Right. Like I. The thing that I would say in response to that and just in general, I would go back to my original solution. If we spent as much money educating our children as we spend on our military, Mm -hmm. this problem would go away too. I think fear is a result of ignorance, Mm -hmm. and I think smarter people are less afraid. They're like – they're able to separate out – Sean Hannity's bullshit mm-hmm. from what's actually happening. I agree. I agree with you on that one, Eric Shackling. Well, we have a word from one of our sponsors, and I'm not really sure, but I think it's maybe a sponsor that's appropriate to what we've been talking about. Let's listen. Getting older, it's a long, slow slide into the inevitable. All the vitamins and exercise and face cream in the world can't change the fate we all share. You can rinse away the gray, but you can't hide from the truth. Life is to be lived, and let's face it, over time, that just gets harder and harder to do. Your body starts to decay long before you shuffle off this mortal coil. Cialis and Viagra only serve to remind us that what used to be a source of joy and an expression of happiness has become a flabby shadow of a time that isn't coming again. In the end, we all just wind up in the proverbial rocking chair waiting for the relief of a good bowel movement or the welcome, cold embrace of death. But not the lucky ones. In America, thanks to the tireless efforts of a dedicated industry and the indefatigable cadre of elected public servants who support them, annually, nearly eight to 9,000 fortunate Americans are spared the soul-crushing tedium of growing old, gracefully or otherwise. Each year, these selfless crusaders spend millions to bring the cause of unnecessary aging to the attention of legislators and public officials. Through their ceaseless efforts, nothing stands between you and your growing opportunities to prevent unnecessary aging. These advocates for preventable aging have been so successful that each year, accidentally, hundreds, many still in the bloom of youth, are spared the tragedy of aging altogether. By contrast, many years in underdeveloped countries like Japan, you can count those who are saved from the agony of aging on your fingers if you still have all 10. So the next time you feel a twinge in your back as you bend over to check out your crow's feet in the mirror because you can't see them with your glasses on and you can't see that far without your glasses, take a moment to thank your maker that you've got a better chance of seeing him sooner because you live in a country where age-limiting visionaries are working around the clock to make sure you have the freedom to leave behind a better-looking corpse. Getting older, don't let it happen to you. This message is brought to you by the good folks at the National Rifle Association. You're welcome, America. Tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party.
You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Let's dish. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And so we thought we would bring in a sort of special guest for this first ever edition of Since You Didn't Ask. About a week ago, I interviewed author Terry Hayes, who some people may know as the screenwriter of The Road Warrior and Payback and Deadcom. Cool. The movie that launched Nicole Kidman. He has published his first thriller. It's called I Am Pilgrim. It's been published, I think, in almost every country in the world. Wow. And America is last. So I thought since... (laughs) One of the major focuses of the book and one of the major unsolvable problems, it seems, that we want to weigh, on, weigh in on tonight, excuse me, is Islamic terrorism. So we have some clips from my interview, and then I'm going to put a question to you, Eric Quinn, that was put to Terry. But first, let's hear a little bit from him and from me about his book. I think what's great, though, is that what you got in there it was in terms of execution. I think a lot of thriller writers for the past... 10 or years, let's say post 9-11, have been all about the gimmick. What's the countdown to? What's the bomb going to be? A new disease, a new virus. But you really went in the direction of making you care about these characters and spending, I think, going back to that scenario where if you were pitching this book in advance, they would say, less time on the character's backstory, more time on the chase, you know, more time on the ticking clock. Let's do Jack Bauer in 24, you know. That's where all the emphasis in this genre has been for so long, and I think that's why this book is arriving sort of like a breath of fresh air, if that's the right term for a book about a virus that's going to wipe out the world. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. You know, it's one thing to come up with a new weapon. It's another to come up with a totally new hero. Yeah. Or or soul for that hero. And a new bad guy. I mean, that was the, to me, that was the trick. Um, That I knew I could handle Pilgrim Mm -hmm. because my wife says he's me. Now. (laughs) But they'll all say that. uh, Everyone who knows you will say that. They'll see you in every character you write. She would say anything, you know. I mean, she's very supportive. But she says, no, he's... (laughs) He's got a vast repository of completely useless knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) And... I, I just happen to be really good at Trivial Pursuit, I think. Yeah. Um, as she says, he's got this sort of fairly sardonic sense of humour, tries not to take everything too seriously. So, yeah, there's elements of that. And I figured that I could abstract from myself. And I personally think he's everything that I would have liked to have been. Like, I'm not saying right. in, in his, like, being an, sure. a, a COVID right. agent, but just as a human being. Right. I, I've, I've felt... That I felt a, a closeness to him. The bad guy, I didn't. When I came to do this, I've got a, a guy who wants to wipe out not just America, but the Western world. And despite what, you know, some people, not only in America, but in Australia and in Britain and everywhere else think, people do not go to bed one night worrying about their cell... Young men don't go to bed worrying about their cell phone, meeting girls, fast cars... Uh, coffee shops and how much more money they can get from the Saudi government because they happen to be related to something right. or another. And then wake up the next morning and say, hey, I've got a good idea. I think I'll wipe out half the world. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that, that doesn't happen. Right. That's, a, that's like me with our Governor General <clears throat> just deciding, no, oh, this is the easy way. I, I hate him. Or this is an easy explanation. Yeah, they're Islamic fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. These, these people are radicalised and I needed for my character something that would radicalise him at a very early age. So I found two Irish guys 
you have to understand in Saudi Arabia there's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. The world's most boring place. You can't go to a mixed sex coffee shop. You will not see an image of a woman on a billboard. You will not see a movie. You won't go to a play. Music is very much looked down upon, as you probably know, in, in Islamic culture. Um, you're not allowed in art to represent the human form in, in any way. So there's really very little cultural social life as we would understand it, except for one thing. When it comes to a public execution, mm. everybody's welcome. Mm. Everybody can come, kids, women, men, <coughs> and the method of public execution is beheading on a marble platform. So I found these two Irish guys who were working for Aramco, the, the Saudi American oil company, who heard that there was a public execution on. Mm. So they went down to have a look. Wow. Yeah, I, I unfortunately, have, have, in my earlier life as a journalist and foreign correspondent, that I seen, you know, some fairly terrible things, including some people dying. It's not something that I would ever wish upon anybody to, to actually see this. Well, didn't worry these guys. They went down and they saw it. Wow. And um, it was more horrific than one could normally imagine. Mm -hmm. So I chose that as the method of radicalisation. I figured... Just say your father had been arrested, wrongly accused or accused of something which we would just take for granted. He, he criticised the, the, the Saudi royal family. He's arrested, he was informed upon, he's arrested. There's no judicial system worthy of the name. Mm -hmm. It is all completely done on signed confessions. Saudi is the only country in the world where the secret police actually run the, run the prisons. Wow. So you can imagine how difficult it is how, to get confessions. Mm -hmm. Not difficult at all. Right. People confess to anything. And you say in the book that if they recant their confession, once they go back to court, they're simply taken back to prison and tortured more so that they will yeah. once again. The, the judge says, yeah. well, we have a conflict here. Go back and interrogate him some more. So in, in the Saudi judicial system, you haven't got a chance. Right. So I figured, say you're a 12-year-old kid and your father's been arrested and you make it to the square. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to have the kid there mm. when his father actually was beheaded. So he mm. arrives slightly afterwards. Um, and I, I can only tell you, if it had been my dad and I'd been that kid, right. I'd be radicalised too. Right. And it's a very small step in the Middle East to look at your... I mean, we're seeing this in Egypt now. We've seen it in plenty of countries. I mean, Syria uses, you know, chemical weapons against its own people. Mm -hmm. Well, where's, where's the West? Where's right. Australia? Where's America? Where's Britain? Nowhere to be found at the moment. And yet we went and fought a war in Iraq. Right. On exactly the same basis. So it seems to me the goalposts keep moving. Yes. And if you're in the Middle East, there will be any number of people that will tell you that their regimes, and these are really oppressive regimes, they only exist because of the support mm -hmm. that they receive from the West. Right.
So that was author Terry Hayes discussing his debut thriller, I Am Pilgrim at Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore in Redondo Yikes. Beach. Yeah, it's, it's heavy. And the first question he got when we opened up the Q&A was this. And I'm going to put it to you, Eric Sharquin. Yes. And then we'll see how Terry answered. And FYI, we will be playing more of our interview with Terry Hayes in about two weeks on another special. But here's the question. How does the West do anything effective about Islamic radical terrorism when we are in bed with two of its biggest supporters, Saudi Arabia and Qatar? Well, you know, I, I, I you know, terrorists are people with nothing to lose, or at least that's what I've thought mm. for a really long time. With the rise of domestic terrorism in our own country, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe they are people who feel that they have nothing to lose. I, I guess that's really like the whole. The thing that caught my attention with Columbine was how astonishing that these children in this fairly privileged environment mm -hmm. felt like that was a good solution for them. Mm -hmm. Like I, one wonders what brings people to that decision. But in the in the environment that we're talking about in in the Middle East, I it doesn't seem unclear. You know, I nobody who has a lot of stakes, you know, a lot to to let go of, straps on. C4 and walks into a coffee shop and blows themselves up like I, I just that that has to be a pretty dark sort of spot. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that people in Saudi Arabia or in the Middle East in general wouldn't continue to participate in that kind of environment. But I think that, you know, my solution for us would be to deal with what is basically our addiction issue. Mm -hmm. Like I think we are addicted to oil in this country. And I think that a lot of our um, problems in our own country, in our own government, are based on that addiction. Um, we can't seem to break the habit. And I think that our connection to these desperate people mm -hmm. in this situation is because of that addiction, our continuing to be there. So my solution to our involvement in Islamic terrorism would be to leave, mm -hmm. would be to get out of the Middle East, stop buying their oil, stop funding their governments, you know, just completely absent ourselves from that environment. Like if they're really pissed off about our being there, well, we can just go. It's their country and they can do whatever they want to. I, I think that the royal family probably wouldn't last very long without mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. You know, like, I think that that might bring a pretty swift, albeit brutal, end to uh, the, the, the terrorism issue that they're dealing with there. And it might well um, cause the royal family to change their attitudes about people's lives and whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and change the environment that fosters that sort of the desperation that must be involved in in bringing people to choose. I don't know that terrorist leaders aren't doing it for their own cynical ends, but people who choose to be their foot soldiers must be pretty desperate people. Yeah. All right. Well, since I know what he said in answer to the question, I'm not going to spoil it. We're just going to play uh, the answer from Terry Hayes' appearance at Mysterious Galaxy, and we'll see if you two agree. <laughs> So much of the problems of the Middle East are driven by American energy policy. Right. I, that's what I was going to jump in and say. Do, do we talk to the American automobile driver? Is that enough yeah. if we were to reduce that appetite? Th that's right. But, but similarly, we can't say 
to an emerging middle class in China, no, you can't drive cars. Right, exactly. We all drive cars. The moment you say, well, we won't buy oil from the Saudis, well, they'll sell it to somebody else, they'll sell it to China, but gas prices in America and Australia will go through the roof. To me, the fact that American, you know, uh, oil shale and fracking and all of these things, that America is becoming, for the first time in decades, self-sufficient in oil, I think is a, a truly wonderful development. The, the end of fossil fuels will mean the end of the Saudi regime. What can we do in the meantime? I have only one solution. I would take smallpox off the shelf. And how do you do that? You find a cure for smallpox. What happened, and one of the great tragedies of Western existence, in my view, in the 1960s, smallpox was eradicated. Prior to the 1960s, it had killed 100 billion people since we started to walk upright. There's never been a killer like it. There has never, ever, to any species apart from meteorites hitting and wiping out dinosaurs, there's never been anything that's better suited to the destruction of a species than smallpox. Every species on Earth has a pox virus. The most common ones are amongst insects. If we didn't have them, the world would be overrun by insects. Hmm. We wouldn't be here, I can tell you. Smallpox is our apocalypse. Mm. And then in the 1960s, it was eradicated from the planet. A young girl living in an island off of India, I think, was the last person to be naturally infected by smallpox. It was the greatest achievement of medical science. Nobody ever won the Nobel Prize for it, mm. ever. And yet it stands head and shoulders above every other achievement in medical science. It's impossible to consider now what the world was like when there would be smallpox epidemics raging across the world. It, it, it's impossible to put yourself back in that position where whole villages, families would be wiped out. Okay, because we eradicated it, because I think it's the inherent goodness of people, we thought that's the end of it, a triumph. Two examples of it exist. One at Vector, the, 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 the Russian, uh, you know, disease, um, you know, uh, investigative facility, yeah, sure. And the other, uh, the other in Atlanta here. At the CDC. At CDC. Right. They're the two examples that remain. And we don't know if North Korea has it or if other people have it, but okay. Because we'd eradicated it, everybody destroyed the vaccines. The vaccines have to be renewed every number of years. They have to be tested. Everybody said, well, we don't need the vaccines because we don't have the disease. And, and what do you mean by renewed? You mean the vaccine the actually vaccines, has to relate to the existing smallpox yes, virus? You, they have to yeah, pull from it? But you also have to check its right. e efficiency. Right. Is it still, you know, effective? So you have a... a the World Health Organization had quite an expensive thing, but it had all these vaccines. They said, well, after a number of years, it hasn't reappeared everywhere. Nobody anticipated that you would be able to re-engineer it. Mm. Just as nobody ever thought we'd ever see a woolly mammoth walking the planet again, but we're getting close to right. where you can right. do it, maybe. 
but we've cloned sheep. Dolly was cloned. Mm-hmm. Nobody anticipated what the advances would were. So we have no vaccine, except that Bush, the, the younger, in the midst of everything after 9-11, said 300 million vaccinations will be produced and kept here in America. But the Russians have a vaccine evasive smallpox. The CIA says so, and I happen to believe that's right. They engineered, they have 20 metric tons of it that they can load into warheads, and it is vaccine evasive. There's only one solution to this. You work and you find a cure to smallpox. Because once you have a cure, it's no longer has any potency. Mm-hmm. What, you're going to introduce it into America and people are going to say, oh, I'll go down to the hospital, I'll get my shot and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we do that? Mm. Because it had been eradicated and AIDS came along. Mm. And all the glory, all the money, all the research, rightly so, mm-hmm. believe me, rightly so, went into AIDS research. Mm. You know, scientists, especially in these particular fields, they want those Nobel Prizes. Nobody was going to win a Nobel Prize right. for finding a cure for smallpox because it wasn't... I mean, you might as well go find a, a cure for you know, foot and mouth disease in woolly mammoths. Right. It had no currency. But now it's been... Our world has been overwhelmed by advances that we don't even understand. Right. So let me just ask you, though, and, and then I think we're, we'll wrap up and have books signed. Um, you, you honestly believe that the most effective counterpoint to radical Islamic terrorism is to find a cure for smallpox. You believe that there's a, the movement is dedicated to using that in some way. I, I, somebody's going to think it up. Somebody yeah. will... Th- I mean, Because it's such Bible. a choice weapon oh, if you can deliver oh, it. 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 It's the holy grail right. of every weapon. Because we hear a lot about nuclear attacks, oh. but, but the more you read about it, the more you learn that the, 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 the nuke is more likely to kill the people trying so, to get yeah. it somewhere than it would ever kill its target or wreak havoc of any genuine and, and, kind. And the great thing with right. smallpox is you don't even actually have to kill anybody with them. Wow. If you could just bring it into America and it becomes apparent that it's here, the panic right. would panic. overwhelm exactly. nearly everything and the, and the economy would go down the toilet Yes, because there were, it is such a terrible... Right. It is, there's no good way to die, in my experience, from what I've seen of death. <laughs> there's no good way. Right, right. But I tell you what, there's no worse way than smallpox. Absolutely. There is no worse way. Well, there you go, Eric Shawquin. Smallpox cure. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Are you scared? Well, at least it would take away the uh, the prospect of that. I, I I guess disarming the terrorists is as good a solution as any. I, I wonder if people would, in fact, panic. I, I don't think people know enough about smallpox to actually be alarmed if we said it was here. I, I'm not sure if there would be a panic. There, there are people out there who believe that vaccines are actually a problem. It's one of those (laughs) developments in modern culture that I'm just like, oh my God, let's spend more money on education. Please, can't we spend... Although it's often educated people who have just come to believe that vaccines are somehow causing their children to have, you know, I don't know. 
It's it's the lack of a of a of a causal explanation for autism. I, I really think that's what that's a response to. It's looking to you know, lightning is caused by an angry god. Autism and these sort of bewildering mental conditions that beset some of our children are clearly well. What are children getting? All children getting vaccines. So let's point the finger at that. It's really and, uh, crazy. And the onset of those the the autism are is usually delayed, right? It doesn't happen immediately. Exactly. So as you're getting your child vaccinated, as he's doing, the symptoms began to manifest, and I think people become convinced that somehow a, they are yes, related. I had a grown woman who works, at, let's say, in the health and fitness industry say to me with assurance, people can say whatever they want to me. I saw my friend's child and I saw him develop autism after that vaccine. And that's all I need to know. And I, what I wanted to say to her is, well, then you're an idiot. Because if I walked out of this this fitness area and was hit by a car in the crosswalk, and somebody said, I saw him get hit by that car. He had been working out earlier. Clearly, working out will make you get hit by a car. That that stupid bullshit <laughs> way of approaching life is why we have the scientific method. It's why we came up with it, to keep us from being, you know, Yes, pattern recognition idiots. actually helped our evolutionary uh, uh, progress yeah. to begin with, but I think it may be inhibiting us now. The book is called I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. It's what we've been talking about in the context of larger it's things. It's available on our website. It's available on our website. I'm reading it now. It is very good. It is one of the most well-written international thrillers I have ever read. I very really exciting. believe it. It's, his execution and his style is wonderful. And we'll have more of his interview in about two weeks. We're going to include it on our, on our Beach Read special. Very exciting. But now it's time for a little music break here on the Dinner Party Show. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, where dessert is the most important meal of the day. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And this has been our first ever edition of Since You Didn't Ask. Eric and Chris give you unsolicited advice on some of the world's biggest problems. That's right. I hope that we've helped solve some of your issues, oh, or at least bring some up for you. Obama, are you listening? No. And we, we also hope that you'll contribute at your unsolicited uh, opinions about stuff to our Facebook page. Absolutely. We are always having a conversation with you on Facebook, or I should say Shea Butters, our manservant, is always on the Facebook page manning your wild comments and your crazy graphics and pictures. I'm talking about and we you, Philip Cohen. We appreciate you all keeping him out of our hair. We do. Absolutely. So, we're going to debut a new, uh, a new. what are we calling this, a spot, a segment, a little, I don't know. We're going to call it Eric's Final Thought. If you've been listening to the dinner party show from the beginning, you'll know that I completely freaked Eric the fuck out at the beginning of our run. The only time I've ever been stumped. I think it was our first show, yes, right? Yes, it was. The end of our first show, my mother had been in her chair making all kinds of crazy demands and whatever. And I turned to Eric and said, because I was out of shit to say, and I was working the computer for the first time. Right at the end of the show. Well, Eric, any final thoughts? And, and Eric went bug-eyed. I was like, really? That's what you want to say to me? I Only you could have seen his face, party it people. Really, it was one of those moments of like, Okay, we've rehearsed this to death. We've been practicing. We've put all of this together. And at the last moment, you ambush me live on Eddie, the air. final thoughts? Because I just always take it for granted that you have something to say. Well, and I always do. As your mother said during a recent visit uh, for her birthday, or was it her father's birthday? I forget. It was her birthday, right? We surprised her for her birthday. Don't give me that look. I figured it out. <laughs> we've, gone, we've gone home Grandpa for both of their birthdays. Stuff. Uh, she said, well, Eric, you may not have inherited a lot of money from us, but you certainly inherited a lot of mouth. 
Oh, yeah. So with that in mind, we're going to debut Eric's final thought and providing the musical accompaniment, or I should say musical introduction, is a little musical act we call Portland Portsmouth Symphonia. If you haven't heard of them, you have no idea what you're in for. Here is their rendition of the 2001 theme song. Actually, famous musicians, right? I think so. Like Brian Eno is one of them. They <laughs> they all took picked up instruments that they don't know how to play. Yes, that and was tried to perform. Thus spake Zarathustra. If anyone's still listening, no matter what you're doing, just remember, there's probably someone doing a worse job of it than you. Amen, sister friend. Amen. Yeah, that was really... Somebody posted that on Facebook earlier this week, and it had been divorced from its source. Not as, my thought. That was original to me. Yeah, no. The, the, the Portsmouth Symphonia. The Portsmouth Symphonia. Um. It had this random graphic of a of a like a Chinese children's orchestra like associated with it, and somebody in the comment thread went and found that it was the Portsmouth Symphonia, and what their story was. There, I think they're from the seventies or, or maybe the eighties. Really, really old. Anyway, like when you were much, young, like when I was a child, because Lord knows I'm not a child anymore. And anyway, that was a really long time ago. Next week, we are going to be joined live in studio by Kristen Johnson, the <laughs> Emmy-winning actress. I Eric love her. is fangirling. So happy. I love her so much. Yeah, she will be with us, and we will be with you live from the Sunset Strip, as we like to say. But until then, I will remain Christopher Rice. And as always, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to The Dinner Party Show. Thanks. Party.